uh, if you've kept up with the news this week, uh, I would say this was a pretty good week for our nation, uh, particularly for the Supreme Court. First, they struck down the president's unconstitutional student loan forgiveness program, saying that he did not have the authority to just forgive all of that money. Then they protected the freedom of speech and religion when they ruled that a state could not coerce a designer to make a wedding website for gay couples. Perhaps most importantly, or earth-shattering, depending on what side you were on, was their ruling against affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, this was something that uh, didn't start in 2003, but 2003 was when the, uh, the previous, the Supreme Court at that time made a ruling that a college had the right to discriminate against Asians, Asian students, so long as the product or the result was quote-unquote diversity through this so-called affirmative action program. And so to, to achieve diversity in 2003, that Supreme Court said it's okay to discriminate against some folks just because of the color of skin, just so we could have diversity. Well, uh, that decision was a farce. And this Supreme Court, thankfully, ruled that decision unconstitutional. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion, which uh, all the mainstream media have uh, really, really attacked, and he really poked the bear, I guess, so to speak. You know, when something like that happens, uh, you it drives you to read that opinion to say, what about it? Uh, poked the hornet's nest. Well, this is what he wrote. These awful words. I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles. So clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. That was his heinous opinion. That's got everybody up in arms. Um, you know, it mattered for me, this opinion. It was a good week for me because I look at my son. He's smart. I don't want him to be discriminated against when he goes to college. Um, and so that was a very important thing for our family. But as my wife reminded me, don't count your chickens yet. Uh, I don't know if that's the right uh, phrase to use, idiom to use. Uh, don't get too optimistic yet because it wasn't a perfect week. Uh, also this week, I think even right now in Center City, there's the group Moms for Liberty that are, that are meeting for their annual summit. Many from around the country have come to support it, which is great. Many came to protest it, which is their right to do, and they can protest it. This is the country that we live in. You're allowed to have different points of view. What was not right was how the protesters used violence and vandalized the American Museum of uh, the Museum of American Revolution. Why they would choose that place to vandalize of all the different places in Center City. Now think about that. 
That's the one museum that's the symbol of our nation's founding. So by protesting, not just protesting there, that's their right to protest on any public space. But by vandalizing it, I saw some pictures where they wrote curse words, spray painted curse words over some of the uh, entranceways and things like that. Why you would do that? Uh, actually, one of the curse words was over Washington's crossing of the Delaware. Okay, why you would do that for that symbolic place in our country says something about their main goals. Okay. So as my wife reminded me, don't get too happy. Uh, things that we are happy for this week might turn against us next week. Uh, and we're right back to where we started and perhaps even worse. We live in times of shifting tides. I took my son to the beach for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, for the, you know, we haven't been to the beach in a, since COVID, basically, right? When they shut down the beaches, right? Uh, and it was, it was nice to feel the tide come in and come out and kind of push, you know, pull you a little bit, right? Um, but we, we live in times of, of tremendous tides. Sometimes we win and then we lose. Sometimes our nation appears to move in the right direction. And then the next day we go two steps backwards. Sometimes we have good leaders. Most often we have bad leaders. So when we come to a text like today's, where the Bible clearly tells us to pray for all leaders, how do we do this? I'm not talking about leaders that we like. The Bible doesn't here say pray for Republican leaders. <laughs> doesn't, even, doesn't say pray for godly leaders. says to pray for all leaders. The question is, how do we apply this today? Especially when we know our leaders are bad. Uh, not just bad, but in a foolish way, but bad in a wicked, nefarious way. So that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about today's text in four simple points. Uh, where does this command come from? From where does this come? For whom should we pray? How or for what should we pray for? And then uh, the last but probably most important question, why? Why should we do this? Okay, so where did this come from? For whom? How or what should we pray? And then why? So first, where does this command come? Uh, we might think when we come to chapter 2, you know, many, many of Paul's letters begin with what's called the indicative, where he tells us the, the truth about God's promise, about God's providence, right, as we talked about in today's Sunday school. And then he shifts to a section where it's application, imperatives. Um, and so we might come to chapter two thinking, well, here is Paul just giving, starting his laundry list of uh, imperatives or commands for us to do. That's not, uh, that's not exactly what's going on here, okay? Uh, look at verse one, chapter two, verse one. This is what the Bible says again. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. He begins this verse with that word, therefore. 
therefore connects this verse to what came previously. Uh, meaning, whatever Paul wrote about previously, this is the logical first thing to do. First action item to make whatever he said previously come true. Okay? Now, what did Paul write to Timothy previously? Well, he gave Timothy a charge. The charge had two parts. First, Timothy was to tell the church to teach no other doctrine, meaning to be faithful to God's word and to tell others, charge others to be faithful to God's word. And Timothy's charge was to love from a pure heart and a good conscience. That's in chapter one. Uh, at the end of chapter one, Paul summarizes his charge to Timothy by saying, this is the good warfare, wage this good warfare, but with faith along with a good conscience. So Timothy is to wage this warfare of trying to keep the Ephesian church from falling into falsehood, of trying to keep the Ephesian church standing on the truth and to do it from a pure heart and a good conscience. He's to wage this warfare with faith and a good conscience. Now, that's actually hard to do if you think about it. Because it's one thing to wage warfare, even spiritual warfare. Uh, it's, a, it's one thing also to wage it with faith. Of course, it takes faith to wage spiritual warfare. But it's a whole other thing to, to wage warfare with a good conscience. Conscience, uh, this word means uh, that inner voice, that inner voice that we all have that tells us when we've done something right and when we've done something wrong. In biblical terms, it's what Romans 2.15 talks about. It's the law of God that God has written on our hearts that either accuses us or excuses us. Okay, that's conscience. Now, if any of us have actually gone through spiritual warfare in church, uh, the type of warfare where there's two sides, your side is you're, you're trying to stand up for the truth and the other one is trying to draw you away from the truth, if you've ever been in that type of warfare, you know how hard it is to wage that warfare with a good conscience, meaning honorably, right? Because the other side will resort to tactics that are dishonorable. You know, in uh, the, the beginning of Vanguard Presbytery, we had a sort of a, 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 a disagreement, I, I guess it would be a nice way to say. Um, and things were... Sometimes done honorably. Other times things were done dishonorably. And it was really hard for members to keep their feet on the honorable side. No matter if you were on the right side or the wrong side. It's hard. So, how? How can we wage warfare, spiritual warfare? Okay, we're not talking about real, real warfare. Spiritual warfare. How can we wage spiritual warfare in the church with honor, with a good conscience? Well, Paul answered this, answers this in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, the first thing you must do, first of all, is pray. Pray. Let your supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Pray. Pray. 
the first step to waging this spiritual warfare successfully, ingredient one or step one, when you're making that soup or cookie, is to pray. But why? Why do we pray? Well, the simple answer is it acknowledges that this spiritual battle is not ours. It's God's. We're just commanded by God to participate in it. But ultimately, the victory belongs to God. Right? It's, it's very similar to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is... Uh, arguing against the Corinthians who have taken up factions. Some are with Paul and some are with Apollos and others are with Peter. And Paul says to them, it doesn't matter. None of us matters, right? And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God made you grow spiritually. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. You know, there Paul is talking about the Corinthian church's spiritual growth, saying, I don't matter. Apollos doesn't matter. Peter doesn't matter. God matters. God gives the increase because this is a spiritual matter. Well, the same can be said of spiritual warfare, right? In spiritual warfare, you're trying to win the hearts and minds of churches, church members, convincing them, this is the truth. And what that other side is proposing is not the truth, right? It's a battle for the hearts, souls, and minds of people. It's a spiritual matter. And so who matters in that warfare? It's God. God's the one that'll win the warfare. And so that is why we pray. So that's where this command comes from. It's not just out of the blue that Paul plucks out and says, okay, let's put this first. This is really the very first step of spiritual warfare, prayer. Now, Paul gets specific. For whom should we pray? Uh, let's look at verse 2, 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, where the Bible says, for kings... You know, uh, let your supplications, prayers, and intercessions and giving of thanks be for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Here, Paul has first in mind kings and all who are in authority. Scripture begins here because those who are leaders or those who are in authority in this world, whether it's in politics or in churches or communities or what have you, uh, they have more power and they have the ability to affect more people. And so it's very logical that Paul would begin there. If we're going to pray, then the most important people we pray for are those who can affect the most lives, the leaders. Now, the key here is, the key word here is that word all. Paul says, or the Bible says, we must pray for all in authority. And not just those we like, or those who are tasteful, or those who do good things, or moral things, or biblical things. But he says all in authority. Now, think about this. When the Bible says at that time in 1 Timothy, 
pray for kings and all in authority, who does that include? Well, the first person to come to mind for the original recipients of that letter would be the Roman emperor, right? Right, because he was the highest king and authority. Well, who was the Roman emperor at the time? It was a guy named Nero. Um, we know that 1 Timothy was written sometime after the book of Acts. We know that the book of Acts ends at around 63 to maybe 65 AD. We know that Nero ruled before that and ruled all the way to AD 86. So it's very likely that the, 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 the highest king and the biggest authority at that time was this person Nero. Now, who was Nero? What were some of his exploits? Well, he murdered his mother. He murdered his wife so he could marry his second wife. And then he also murdered his 14-year-old brother because his brother, he thought, was a usurper to his throne. Nero was actually adopted. He was adopted by the previous emperor, emperor Claudius. Now, Claudius had a, his own biological son, a, a younger son. But Claudius divorced his first wife, got rid of her. I don't know if it was divorce or he killed her too. But Claudius got rid of the first wife to marry Nero's mother who had Nero and Nero was a young adolescent. Okay, so Nero was adopted by Claudius. He was his stepson. But of course, you would have the biological son of Claudius waiting in the wings. And so when Claudius died, also uh, in suspicious circumstances, everything is suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so when Claudius died, uh, Nero first covered up evidence that it was Claudius's biological son who was supposed to take over. He covered that up, and then he had that person offed. Wow. And then he also burned Rome. And we're supposed to pray for him first. You know, we live in very different times. Who would we consider to be a Nero today? Seriously, okay? Murdered. Family members, mothers, wife, brothers, Kim of North Korea, okay, possibly the worst dictator or tyrant you could ever think of. Um, okay, you know, you're, you're, we're at that level, okay, and we're and we're the first command. First of all, the Bible says, pray for them. Now, how often do we do that? You know, I've been to many churches growing up, and uh, I can probably say not once have I heard a prayer for Kim of North Korea or uh, you know, the communist leaders around the world uh, or for many other leaders. Yeah, um, even in missions conferences, uh, you might hear prayers for certain leaders, but not them and here the bible says first of all pray for them this is a challenge the point is the bible is challenging us to pray for all leaders regardless of what we think about them that's the command there's no shifting from it that's what it says we are to pray for all leaders regardless if we agree with them or not 
It's not saying pray for all leaders only when your side is a leader, and don't pray for them when when it's you know when your side hasn't won the election. Um, I grew up. I didn't grow up uh, in this church. Growing up for a little while, I went to this church. Uh, looking back on it now, I know that this was a pretty liberal or progressive church. Um, whenever a more liberal leader would be elected, the church would focus on this verse: "Pray for your leaders." And then, when a not so liberal leader would be elected, uh, oddly, we forgot about this verse, and we went to the verse about render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to Christ what's Christ. Kind of saying, well, you know, just kind of don't get involved in. You know whatever is going on in in our country right now, just focus on Jesus. So, the message was, when we had a leader that we liked, pray for them. And then when we'd have a leader that we don't like, just ignore it. Focus on the church. I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. Pray for all leaders. That's the for whom. Now for what? Or how should we pray for them? Right. First、uh, Timothy two verse two,、uh, the second half. Pray for all kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. There's a point to our prayer. There is a prayer request when we pray for all leaders. It's not just we pray for Kim or she or whoever. To accomplish everything they that they want to accomplish, it's not just that we pray for God to bless them in all their wickedness. Okay, there's there's a very specific prayer request. Essentially, that prayer request is that God would shape them in some way where they would leave Christians alone. Give us peace. Give us freedom. Not just to worship, but also to evangelize. To to obey God and His commands, give us peace and give us freedom. Why? So that the gospel can propagate, so that men can be saved.、Um, we read Ezra six. Ezra six. Ezra was a a, a priest.、Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra wrote. Ezra and also Nehemiah.、Um, he was a priest.、Uh, he was one of the people that were exiled to、uh, Babylon, but then returned. So he was one of the returnees.、Uh, as we know in the Bible, when they returned, they tried to. They had the emperor's word to to rebuild the temple,、um, but then there were these people that sprouted up and and were against them, right? And so in Ezra six, what we read was another king of Persia. Going back in the records, finding that、uh, that previous king of Persia, what he had said about the temple, and this king of Persia saying, "No, you got to follow this decree. You know, I'm going to protect these Jews, and I'm going to allow them to build the temple." Actually, he says, "I'm going to not only give them the temple, I'm going to provide all the money to build the temple, and all of the sacrifices that they need. You know, for." For for the for 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 their worship, right? And he threatens 
the enemies of the Jews, he says, you leave them alone. And then he says, I'm going to collect taxes from you, give it to the Jews. And if you go against this edict, I'm going to hang you in your own house. Uh, that's pretty strong words. It doesn't come from a Christian. You know, that's not coming from a God-fearing king. You know, the first decree came from Cyrus, who is like Nero, right? I mean, use today's standards to judge a, a, a leader like Cyrus. We would call him a tyrant. In fact, if you look at the ancient world, the biblical world, even the best, even the most democratic leader back then, we would call tyrants today, right? Blood-sucking, murdering tyrants. That's what they were. So was Darius. And yet God did something through Cyrus and Darius for his people, allowed Ezra and the people and Nehemiah to rebuild that temple to have peace, right? To flourish, to grow again as a community of God. So if you don't think this prayer is important and can do things, you're wrong. I'll think about Esther, right? Um, when Esther goes to King Ahasuerus and begs him for her life, that was because there was an edict throughout all of Persia for one day for all the enemies of the Jews to rise up and, and basically wipe out all the Jews. Persia at the time covered the entire known world from Africa to India. So we're not talking about a little country in the Middle East. We're talking about the whole world, okay? Middle East, Asia, Turkey, uh, parts of Greece, you know, the entire world. And in Easter, uh, in Esther, I'm sorry, in Esther, the, the, the day was that uh, all over the empire, the enemies of the Jews would be able to get up and, and slaughter all the Jews, which is annihilation of all of God's people and might as well very have been uh, that if that had been carried out, we might not get a New Testament. Okay, if they were successful, I mean, that was what God's people was facing. Okay, and then Ahasuerus, he's not, he's not a great king, right? We, in chapter one, shows how he tried to throw out his trophy wife and when she refused, I don't want to be the trophy wife. He, he offed her, right? And then and he goes to the harem. He has a harem of little girls. And he picks one out, which happens to be Esther, and makes her his, his queen. His, you know, that's not a good man, Ahasuerus. And yet, God, right? Come on. And yet, God used Ahasuerus to not only save the Israelites, but turns it all around. On that day, Purim, the Israelites are able to defend themselves through an edict by Ahasuerus. So if you don't think praying for an evil leader matters for the people of God, you are wrong. At least twice we have evil leaders saving the people of God from extinction. It's a fine balance beam. You know, we are to pray for all leaders, but we're not just to pray for them for everything, that they succeed in everything they do. We're to pray for them for a specific prayer request that they would give God's people peace, leave us alone, give us freedom, 
and allow us to practice our faith, to evangelize, to live out our faith. Now that's a prayer request. Last, why? Why does Paul put this first? Why is this so important? This is what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 6. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself and ransom for all to be testified in due time. The reason why we pray for leaders, first of all, is because God desires all men to be saved. And leaders happen to be those who affect most men. Now your question is, how do we square this with God's predestination? Because the Bible is clear. God has predestined some, not just for salvation, but also predestined some for damnation in his wrath. Sometimes we call this double predestination. It's not just he predestines some to salvation and the other ones, he kind of leaves them to decide on their own. No, he has predetermined, predestined the, the, the fate of all of us, right? Either for salvation or for his wrath. Romans 9, 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Romans 9, a little bit later, 22 to 23. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, prepare for destruction, so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So there are vessels of wrath that God has created for wrath and vessels of mercy that he has created for mercy. So how do we square this predestination with this verse that says, well, God desires all to be saved. You know, the church has tried to answer this throughout its history in many ways. Whenever it's gone to human reasoning, it's all gone wrong. Uh, the source of many heresies, we're not going to have time to go through all of them. Basically, they fall short in one of two ways. Either the church has said, well, this, this verse is not totally genuine. God's desire for all men to be saved isn't really a desire for all men to be saved. It's not a genuine desire because obviously he you know, desires some to be damned. Okay? Either his desire is not genuine and we, uh, we water down this verse, or more often we water down his predestination. He hasn't really predestined all to, to damnation. Uh, he might predestine some to, to salvation, but there's ways where we can alter that predestination or somehow he bases his predestination on what we will do. Um, so either way, something is watered down. Either God's desire to save is watered down or his power, <laughs> his power to predetermine something is watered down. So how, how are we supposed to make sense of this? Well, the best option is to go by other biblical verses that uh, sort of talk about the same thing and use those as a guide to interpret this scripture, right? What a novel concept. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Where uh, 
the the word all does not mean every single last one in the world, but the word all means every kind or everywhere. Um, in other words, uh, the word all in this verse, where it says, who desires all men to be saved means God desires men of all nations, languages, and cultures, and backgrounds, and ages to be saved. Um, so the word all doesn't mean every single last one in the world, but it means one of uh, all of every kind, all of every uh, type of person. Uh, this is the same logic that's used in John 3.16, right? The verses that we read or that Kirk read. I'm just going to turn there. John 3.16. Of course, we have that verse. Uh, verse 16 that everybody loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, what does the Bible mean by the world? Does, it, does he mean every single last person in the world? Or does he mean you know, the world as in men of all types and languages and, 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 and backgrounds? Well, certainly in the context... Uh, God does not mean that he's going to save every single last person in the world, right? Because the very next verse talks about his condemnation and his judgment for those who don't believe. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there, obviously, God says that some will be condemned. They are condemned already if they don't believe on his Son. So that word world doesn't mean every single last person in the world. It means of every kind, nation, language, background. Uh, the psalm that we will read at the very end, Psalm 97, 98. Psalm 97 is very similar. Psalm 98 talks about God's, the knowledge of God and his salvation being known to the world. And again, the question is, does world mean every single last person in the world? Well, no, because the very last verse of Psalm 98 says, his judgment will come and he's going to judge the world in equity. Okay, certainly a God who's going to save every single last one is not going to go judge the world, right? So it mentions God's judgment and condemnation, right? Um, so the word all here means every kind, every language, background, nation, but not every single last one. But this is the point. Because God desired to save all men of every kind, every age, every epoch of history, you know, every culture, then we ought to pray for those leaders of those nations and languages and cultures and epochs, right? Who affect the lives of men. Because, you know, whatever they do will impact the church's ability to prosper, to not only live out our faith, but to evangelize and carry out the Great Commission. What would this look like if we put it into practice? I'm serious about this. I think we should pray whenever we gather. I think we should pray for our leaders. And not, not just the leaders politically, but church leaders 
right? We began this morning, Rod, with a discussion about what's going on in, in the church uh, uh, generally, right? It's, a lot, it's, it's very messy. Why, how about we pray for those church leaders and not just pray for God to bless them in general, right? We're to walk that balance beam. Why don't we pray for God to, 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 to strike the hearts of those church leaders that are leading their flocks astray so that we can live lives of godliness and reverence, right, for those churches? You know, why don't we pray for our current president? Uh, someday in the future, if they pack the Supreme Court, let's pray for the Supreme Court. Well, let's pray for them now. Let's pray for the all the justices, the liberal and the conservative ones, right? Let's pray for our Congress people, our mayor, who we know is going to be very progressive. Okay, how about the district attorney? who's responsible for a lot of the crime. You know, when your family lives in Philadelphia and you are in fear of crime or you've been negatively affected by the crime, you're dealing with the grief, right? We talked this morning about how, how overcoming grief can be. You know, your first thought might not be to go to church and turn to the Lord. We need the conditions on the ground of peace and freedom so that people can turn to the Lord, right? And so we ought to be praying for the leaders of Philadelphia, even though we really disagree with them. But it, again, it's not to pray for just God to prosper them in whatever they do, definitely not. It's to pray for a specific thing, that the church would be able to flourish. If we do not do this command, what does that say about our faith? Why, why don't more churches do this? Why is it that I've never been to a church where we lead off with, let's pray for our leaders? Why don't we do this? Is it because we don't think God will do something? That God's not powerful enough to change the mind of Kenny Krasner? To change the mind of Darius? And Cyrus, right? Do we think God's not powerful enough? Do we think he's going to be unfaithful to his word? All the other parts of the scripture we say, we trust him to be faithful and he's unchanging, except for this verse, maybe. We think he's, gonna, he's not going to answer us. Or do we think that the tides of wickedness and evil around us are so great that even if God can do something about it and does something about it, it won't matter in the, in the, in the end analysis. What's the reason why we don't do this? So friends, let's do this. May God give us the grace and the reminder to pray for our leaders, all of our leaders. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, we do want to spend some time to pray for our leaders, for our nation's leaders, for our city's leaders, for the leaders of churches around the world, uh, even locally. Um, Lord, we're not going to name every single one, but uh, you know the mess that we are in, in our country, in the world, 
Um, what does it say about the world when this country is not on the forefront of evangelism, of faithful, truthful evangelism? When we can't get our stuff together, what does that mean for the rest of the world that needs the gospel? Father, we pray for the leaders of the churches, uh, in particular of this country that has gone so far away from your word. We pray not for your blessing on them uh, 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 in, a, in a blanket slate, uh, but we pray that you would change hearts and minds, that you would convict those who have gone away from your word, that you would convict those of the wickedness that they have done, that you would uh, draw leaders back to you. And or at the just the very least to let your Bible believing, faithful flock worship you unhindered. Lord, we, we pray that you would grant this for our nation and for our church. Indeed, that you would fulfill your promise that you desire all men to be saved. And yes, we want to see that day when many men come to salvation, come to the saving knowledge of you. Father, protect us, give us strength. Uh, give us the grace, remind us to keep this on the forefront of what we do. Each time we pray, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.